So I'm here today with Laura Blaze McDowell. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us and for being part of the first ever Noelle Vice Press podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. One of your stories, Balloon Animals, is going to be in Still Worlds Turning. Yeah. And you have agreed to read some of it in a little yeah. bit. But um, <laughs> before, before we get to that point, would you like to just introduce yourself and tell us about your writing and where you are at the minute in life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very loaded question. <laughs> we, want. Um, <laughs> we want all the details. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, my name is Laura Blaze McDool. I, um, I'm very excited to have my story, Balloon Animals, in uh, Still Rose Turning. For us, as, as sort of um, publisher and editor, picking a story and going mm-hmm. through the 1,000 stories that were submitted <laughs> to us, yeah. this one without a shadow without jumped off the page and um, the, 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 the ideas behind the you know the characters the narrative the story I mean it just can you tell us a little bit how they came about so I was thinking about this last night because I had I kind of you know sometimes you write something and you're just like I never you don't like analyze it yourself as in like where did where did this come from <laughs> um, but I sat down last night just to sort of think about that and I remembered something that I had forgotten. And it was that um, in season two of Fargo, I don't know if you guys watched yeah. Fargo, uh, but in season two of Fargo, there's uh, a minor character called Noreen who works in a butcher. She's just like the cashier in a butcher shop. And uh, she sort of bears witness and becomes involved in this like really crazy like fight thing and becomes a larger character from there. But I remember watching that and really liking the idea of uh, someone just having like, a, the most innocuous job in the world and suddenly getting like dragged into like lunacy that totally doesn't relate to the job but somehow does um so i remember thinking that and really liking that idea and then i also simultaneously at the same like at that time was thinking uh, generally about phoenix park and i always kind of liked the idea of like not knowing what's going on in phoenix park like it's the biggest it's like the biggest enclosed park in any capital city in Europe. Mm-hmm. And um, we can't possibly know <laughs> what's going on in there all the time. And so it's I always... It's like a hidden wonderland. Yeah. So I always, like, whenever I would like go for walks there or whatever, I'd kind of be like looking into the forests. <laughs> like, I wonder what's taking place in there when we don't know. I mean, probably all sorts of terrible things. But um, I had this, I had like the image of like a tiger in there and it's not to do with the zoo because <laughs> I realized that I was like oh obviously there's tigers in Phoenix Park but um of like a tiger like some something interesting like an kind of unexpected happening in there something inherently wild yeah yeah a little bit and like um maybe people living in there who were a little bit strange or a little bit uncanny um yeah somehow those two thoughts like sort of coincided in my mind and then um that's Kind of what happened when I sat down to write them, balloon animals sort of like came forth fairly uh, fully formed. Like I didn't, I didn't plot it or no. like have any structure <laughs> at all. I just like kind of wrote it start to finish. That's really interesting because yeah. the, there's some really kind of like you know you're sort of led in with these very funny things, and then you know the humor is kind of used as a way to really talk about some really dark stuff, yeah. isn't it? you know? And um, we were talking to Jan Carson about how she uses magical realism in a way 
maybe in her story, you know, it's like you're also being led somewhere that you don't realize, and suddenly you're in this really like <laughs> yeah. whole other territory of massive, you know, kind of surrealism. It's it's the idea of the normal and the expected and the things that move around us in a daily fashion that we just take for granted. Yeah. And then there is, you know, it's like one corner away or one street away or one stretch of grass away. Yeah. It, it, you know, if the idea of a, if a tree falls in the forest, how do we know it's fallen? Has anyone heard of it? Yeah. It's that sort of thing. And it, it, I think it's, it's marrying the, like you said, about your, your, your characters being in situations where you think there's a sense of normality and then all of a sudden with the, you know, the tinkling of the doorbell, someone coming in, and the, the, the whole, whole arena of existence is turned on its head. Uh, obviously, uh, you like to be playful <laughs> with, your, with your ideas and your characters and where you're going to send them to. So would you like to maybe read some of Balloon Animals for us? Would you be up for that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just put a slight disclaimer on this that like I never <laughs> when I was writing it anticipated reading it out loud and therefore there are several accents in here that I can't do so um, well like, like, yeah. we, like we said before the, the accents on the page we can imagine yeah and um, I'm sure that, um, that they, they will come through fine okay we noticed that strangely what, what we didn't expect at, at the start of balloon animals was a quote from JFK. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, when I was writing the story, uh, I sort of, for like the Bostonian themes <laughs> were coming through for some reason. Um, and I suppose actually, um, I suppose because the circus was called Kennedy's and stuff, I had it in my mind this sort of um, idea of undercutting the like weird, kind of creepy, gritty, druggy clown circus um, with this idea of like American like wholesomeness and like the Kennedys as like you know the the real American dream like handsome Catholics from Boston but um, the Kennedys were themselves like that family is quite layered with like dark secrets and and um, and you know they're not they're not perfect so yeah, prohibition I, and drinks running and right and exactly or, yeah and uh, Chappaquiddick <laughs> you know yeah, everything yeah. so. I liked the idea of that sort of facade and maybe what the kind of the two sides of things. Um, and then I was like, I wonder if JFK had any quotes about tigers. <laughs> <laughs> and I Googled it and he did. This and quote. It's so perfect. For it's, story that's it's amazing. I know. And it's from like an inaugural address he made and it's about communism. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the story. But it, like, as a, just a standalone sentence, uh, yeah. worked so well. My brain, yeah. like, exploded. I couldn't believe that I had found it. Imagine and then, how much fun it would have been if he had had a quote about coke-crazed clowns. I know, but uh, this was second best. So the story is in no way a commentary on communism. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I was delighted to find it. It kind of solidified in my mind like a certainty that like I had gone the right direction in including a strange like strand about Boston. <laughs> because I have to say, when 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 I when I when I saw the title and I read the, the I, I read the JFK quote, I thought, where the hell is this going to go? Yeah. And uh, it isn't where I expected it to go. Yeah, so I mean, thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah, I didn't know where it was going to go either, and but it just sort of went there without any um, prim without permission. Like it just 
went straight to its conclusion. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, it works. Thank you. <laughs> Balloon animals. Those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. JFK. <laughs> you know those clowns who come in here? I ask Rhonda. Sure, she says. Are they from Kennedy's Circus? Sure ah, she sighs, her Bostonian accent echoing. Sure ah. Their tent is after catching fire, I tell her, holding out my phone for her to see. Rhonda jerks her head up from straightening the lapels of a freshly cleaned coat and peers over its shoulder at a photograph of a huge tent, its red and white stripes blackening and disappearing in great gulfs of blue and yellow flame. Jesus Christ, she breathes. It doesn't mention anyone being injured, I say, scanning the article. But I guess they'll have to kick the habit now. What do you mean, habit? She snaps. I'd been working in white sheets dry cleaners near South Circular Road only a couple of days before I found out what was really going on. What, I say. Did you think I'd assume you were leaving little bags of washing powder free of charge in people's coat pockets so they could do it themselves next time? Rhonda eyes me from underneath her black beret, taps a heeled boot on the tiles. Look, she says, dropping her hands from the coat and reaching out her right arm to lean on the counter. Honestly, I hired you because you look boring. Not like boring in the sense you'd grasp me up, but boring in the sense you wouldn't want to be involved, per se. I hope I was right about that. Jesus, Rhonda, I say. I'm hardly looking for a cut of the action. I'm just surprised you thought I wouldn't notice. She shrugs. Is that why you call it white sheets? I ask. Pardon? White sheets? It's a joke, isn't it? Like a hint. Cocaine. White. Aren't you sharp, she says, narrowing her eyes. Well, anyway, I say, we probably won't be seeing them for a while. I'd say they'll need to pinch their pennies after this. Rhonda doesn't say anything. To be honest, I go on, it was that lot who gave you away. The last fellow was rifling through the suit, had his finger in his mouth before he even paid. He had stood there in front of me looking me in the eye as he rubbed his finger so hard over his gums it looked like he might press his teeth out. Fucking Malachy. It was Malachy, wasn't it? Says Rhonda, shaking her head so that the strands of her black fringe shake side to side. The one with the scar. It had indeed been Malachy. The clouds usually left their suits in to be dry-cleaned every couple of days. They invariably had paint encrusting the lines of their faces, seeping into their crow's feet, red circling the curls of their nostrils. There was always somewhere in the scar that dragged the left cor corner of Malachy's mouth down towards his chin. They never said much, only handed over their dockets, stood twitching, wide-eyed in the bright lights. One time, when I returned with his suit, Malachy thrust a balloon animal at me. It was the shape of a tiger, with the stripes crudely scribbled on in permanent marker. It hadn't felt like a friendly gesture. As Rhonda taps her heel, I notice the tiger, deflated on the floor in the corner, all bent out of shape. I hope you're right, kid, she says. If I ever see that sorry bunch again, it'll be too soon. Why, I ask. I thought they were your best customers. She shifts her weight from one foot to the other, rests her hand on her hip. Okay, we had a thing going. I was their sponsor. I'd wash their costumes, uh, etc. In return, they advertised my business. Used to have a big white sheets banner up in the tent at the entrance. Set me up with customers for dry cleaning and, you know, the bit extra. But just last week I pulled my sponsorship, ended our relationship completely. Why? I asked. Those clowns, she leans forward, are bastards. Bastards? Bastards. Sure are. 
Can't say I feel sorry for them. See, I'd never actually gone to one of their shows, you know. All our business was conducted outside the tent. So I go along last week. They bring me backstage. I think we're going to have a party. A good time. She breathes out, shaking her head. No party, I ask. I'm telling you, there was no party. I can't believe the way they treated that tiger, the size of the cage, all those clowns out of their minds tormenting him. She shudders. I pulled my sponsorship right away. The article says the tiger was lost in the fire, I say. Poor tiger, she says. Poor tiger, I agree. The next day we're working late. I'm in the back, sorting orders when the door flings open, the bell bashing wildly. I turn to see through the plastic wrap coats and dresses that it's Malachy. He's wearing a molting neon green wig, a black suit jacket over a blue and green checked clown suit. Face paint outlines his features, but the flat expanses of his cheeks and forehead are clear and pale. His eyes are black, and before Rhonda can say anything, he pulls a handgun from his inside pocket, points it at her and shoots twice, once in the chest, once in the head. She lands almost at my feet, her head hitting the bottom rung of the clothing rail. It shifts on its wheels as she lands, the garments sway on their hangers. The bullet has blown two strands of her fringe in opposite directions, like curtains opening on a show. I look up and Malachi's staring right at me, though he can only see my eyes above the rail. I duck and feel a bullet howl above me. The door flings open, the bell bashes again, then silence. On my knees, I look at Rhonda, her head all dead and upside down. Her eyes are open, her beret blown clean away. There's blood on her chest where she's been hit, but her face is intact apart from the hole. She has a tiny piece of lettuce stuck between her two front teeth. I wish I'd told her when I had the chance. The bell clangs again and I jump up. This time it's not a clown, though these two men also have guns. You, says the smaller one, pointing his gun straight at me. Oh, don't bother, I say. It'll be more trouble than it's worth. Get out from behind there, says the small one, who's from Dublin. Let us see you. I step out and towards the counter. Do you have a docket? I ask him. Do the clown see you? He asks. Yes, I say. You have to come with us. No, I say, I work here. There'll be no, le no one left if I leave. The two men look at each other, then separate and walk around the end of the counter. The taller heaves Rhonda over his shoulder while the smaller one grabs me, his gun to my back, and drags me out of the shop. No messing, he says. When I said it'd be more trouble than it's worth, what I'd meant was that my parents would kick up an almighty fuss. It's probably sounded self-deprecating, but it wasn't really. Those men, weedy enough behind their barrels, didn't stand a chance against my mother and father, fierce and feral when it came to their offspring. One time at home, when some local gurriers hopped on my younger brother, Keen, Mam and Dad drove around town for hours with him in the back, a tissue up each nostril and an ice pack affixed to his head with one of Mam's aerobic headbands, till he had spotted the perpetrators loitering outside a newsagent, flicking matches at each other. Dad got out with a bat and the intention of beating the living daylights out of them. Only the guards happened to cruise by at the right time, so Dad handed the culprits over to them. Either way, those little shits got their comeuppance, so you can only imagine what might befall two hapless Egypts, dim-witted enough to murder their daughter on her first year away from home. University life ahead of me, and I their oldest. Not a chance they'd let it lie. There's a micra parked outside. A micra, I say. Shut up, says the taller, as he bungs Rhonda's body in the boot. Climbs into the driver's seat, knees practically up around his ears. He has a northern accent and he's wearing a black beanie. Are you in the Ra? I ask. Is that what this is? Shut up, he says.
The other sits with his arm around me. His grasp would almost be romantic were it not the embrace of a kidnapper. I glance down at the hand holding my arm. Nails bitten to small islands floating in the middle of fleshy seas. Coasts of dirt lining their circumference, tips white with the pressure. Relax, would you, I say. Shut up, he says, and I smell his breath. Tato for dinner? Shut up, he says. As we take off, he lifts his other hand to cover my eyes. Though I can still sort of see through the cracks, his fingers are skinny and don't touch even when they're pressed together at the joints. What kind of criminals are ye, I ask, that you forget a blindfold? Shut up, or I make a gag as well. I go quiet and we shudder along. It's dark, so I can't make out anything recognisable through the gaps between his fingers. Why did he kill Rhonda? I ask after a few minutes. Shut up, says the one holding me. Well, you're going to have to tell me at some stage, I say, since you clearly know. Shut up, he says. I sigh. We stop at traffic lights and I decide to make a break for it. I wrench myself to the left. They didn't lock the door and I'm halfway out before the one beside me tackles me around the right waist and drags me kicking back into the car as the one in front takes off at full speed. Jesus fucking Christ, he says. Oh, Jesus Christ yourself, I say. I could have been fucking killed. Your man raises his eyebrow at me. But I suppose that wouldn't have bothered you too much, would it? I try to laugh, but the adrenaline is pumping in my ears. I hadn't even managed to see where I was when I'd leapt out, but it had been pretty quiet and I don't think anyone saw. At least I didn't hear anyone around me. No one shouted. Your man is sitting fully on top of me now. I'm stomach down, he's straddling the small of my back, holding my arms with his hands. There's nothing over my eyes, but I'm flat to the seat, and I can't see out the windows. Your man driving doesn't even look around. You're some pair, I say, my voice muffled slightly against the old car seat. What are your names? Neck, says the one on top. What about your pal, I say. That's Tongs. Those are fairly gas names, I say. What do your mothers call you? Do you ever shut the fuck up, would you? Neck growls. He's pressing hard on top of me, and my neck is starting to hurt. Neck, my own neck, is beginning to get at me a bit. Would you ever leave off and let me sit up? I won't try anything again. He doesn't respond. You clearly feel an affinity with necks, I try again. So I was hoping I could appeal to that. I'll bleed and break your neck if you're not careful, he says. See, that's what I'm afraid might already be happening, though, I say. Your enormous weight and masculine strength are a bit much for my tiny woman's spine, and... Jesus, fine, I'll let you up if you shut your poxy mouth, fucking hell. He leans over and manually locks my door as I clamber to a sitting position. Yeah, lads, are we in Phoenix Park, I ask, looking around. Fuck's sake, Necker, with, says Tongs, without looking back at us. Don't let her see where you are, you fucking idiot. It's too late now, lads, I say. I know Phoenix Park like the back of my hand, sure, and I come here for runs on the weekend. Oh, fucking hell, says Neck, rubbing his forehead. We keep driving. Neck looks crestfallen. I was only joking, lads, I say. I don't actually run here. She live over on the other side of the city. I only recognised it from going to the zoo last year. Neck doesn't say anything, but he looks a little cheered. We're silent for a few minutes as Tongs keeps driving deeper into the park. You'll forgive me my endless curiosity, I say, but what the hell is going on? Just fucking tell her, says Tongs. Tell her anything to shut her up. Is this to do with the rye, I say again, imagining Tongs all plastered in Republican tattoos beneath his jacket. No, it's not to do with the rye, says Tongs. That sounds like something a militant would say. Well, I'm not fucking militant, all right? That's very offensive. Tongs turns around for the first time, and as he does so, doesn't he hit a fucking deer? The poor thing ricochets off the front window, shattering it. Tongs swerves off the road and into the undergrowth, 
thankfully misses the trees and stops neatly between two pines. I end up in Nick's lap, his body flung over me. Jesus, everybody all right? Says Tongs, whose airbag has inflated and is pressing weakly into his chest. Yeah, says Nick. Peachy, I say. Nick gives me a look. Tongs gives the airbag a few whacks to quicken its deflation and opens the door. He's gone a minute and then arrives at my window with the deer over his shoulder. You're not putting that in here with me, I say. Yes, I fucking am, he says. Unlock the door. I look at Neck, appalled, but he reaches over me and unlocks it. The fuck are you, I start to say, but I'm cut off when Tongs dumps the lifeless, bleeding carcass next to me. No room in the boot, he smirks and slams the door. The smell is overwhelming and I gag a little bit. The deer is a young female. She's contorted her legs up against the back of the seat, body sliding down in a backwards S-shape, broken legs everywhere. Blood glistens around her nose and drips from a large wound on her side. She's facing me, looking me right in the eye. It reminds me a bit of when somebody falls asleep next to you on an airplane, mouth gaping, dribbling on your shoulder and you're powerless. Wanna swap places, I ask Neck. He doesn't respond. Tongs has found himself a rock and is busy smashing out the rest of the windscreen. Once that's done, he climbs back in the front and attempts to reverse out of the undergrowth arm flung over the passenger seat, craning his neck. Here, I can't see anything out the back window. Will you push the deer down, he says. Are you joking, I say. I'm not touching that. I'm already pressed up against Neck, who in turn is flattened against his door in order to be as far from the carcass as possible. I don't even like prodding, snoring neighbours on airplanes. One of you push your fucking head down before I batter the pair of you. Neck gingerly stretches out a hand and uses one finger applies the tiniest amount of pressure to the still warm head. She slides down a little. A pair of fucking pussies you are, says Tongs as he revs the engine and manages to get us out of the undergrowth. We drive along a little way in silence again. I'm still practically in Nick's lap. I'm a weekday vegetarian, you know, I say. So if you're planning on feeding this one to me for dinner, I'm afraid you'll have to make other arrangements. Nah, she's not for you, says Nick, with the vague hint of a smile curling on the corner of his thin little mouth. Oh, she's not, no? All for the boys, eh? Oh, she's not for us either, says Neck. Something about the way he says it makes me uncomfortable. There's a change in the atmosphere in the car. I shift on the seat so I'm not touching Neck as much, so I can't feel his tato breath moving my hair. What's it for, so, I ask? Ho ho, says Tongs, just you wait and see. It's freezing now that there's no windscreen, the only heat coming off the steaming deer. I suppose I could leap straight ahead of me, out the front and over the bonnet, but I'd likely impale myself on the jagged glass left around the edges. Lads, would you just tell me where we're going or else let me go? I'll not tell on you. I, sure, I don't even know your real names, do I? Nobody says anything. I read somewhere that humanising yourself to your kidnapper can sometimes endear you to them, make them more sympathetic. Apparently there was once a serial killer who paid for a potential victim's flight home because she told him her dad had cancer. I have a nickname too, I say. It's Lopey. My name's Penelope because my parents had notions back in the day. But I was never called Penny, I was called Lopey because I was forever moping and loping about the place. Again, neither of them say anything. Did you get your nicknames from something you did or, or how did they come about? Jesus, they're making me feel like I'm inflicting myself upon them, trying to sit with the cool kids at lunch. Neck, I say, 
is that just like a sort of D4 type way of saying Nick? Did you actually grow up real posh and now even though you've escaped your yuppie past, everyone still calls you Neck? Neck unzips his black fleece so that I can see his throat. He runs his finger across a long scar above the twin points of his collarbones. Jesus, what happened to you? That was meant to be a threat, he says dryly. What was? It's not me with that scar. No, but... He tuts and shifts in his seat, rolls his eyes. I'll fucking like, ugh, I'll do it to you if you don't stop nattering on. Nattering, I say. I'm hardly here by choice, I'm just trying to... I glance at the deer, open-mouthed and glassy-eyed next to me. Lift the mood. <laughs> Neck looks out the window. What about you, tongs? Were you birthed using a pair of tongs in lieu of a forceps? You know, I heard about that happening to someone once. I think it was my second cousin. Came early and was born on the kitchen floor and her elder brother had to haul her out with tongs from the fireplace. Don't know if he ever recovered. Can you imagine having to extract a baby from your own mother's... I realise we've left the road. We're driving through undergrowth and the car stops suddenly, sending the deer lurching forward, only to land with a whack against the seat, sending globules of blood flying into my face. I wipe them away. Have we arrived? I ask. Neck's arm is back around me, as tightly as it had been at the start. He flicks the handle of his door, kicks it open, dragging me with him. Best to stay quiet, he whispers, and it's not menacing. I just sort of believe him. I don't know what part of this vast park we're in. Don't even know what time it is. It's pitch black and sort of hitting me that Rhonda is dead and these guys know something. Now that we're out of the vacuum of the car, the night seems huge and the weird atmosphere that arrived after the deer seems to have escaped out into the world because I can feel it still. I'm almost glad of Neck's arm around me. Tongs hoists the deer out of the car and over his shoulder, then takes off into the woods. We follow. Rhonda is still in the boot. Neck keeps his arm around me. The ground's uneven and it's too dark to see what's underfoot. It occurs to me to try and make a break for it, but I don't know how I'd find my way out of here and I'd make an unholy racket crashing through the undergrowth. If Neck has any speed on him, which by the looks of me does, he'd have me back in a minute. Suddenly we're ducking under a large sheet hung between two trees that I hadn't even seen coming. It had been totally camouflaged. Behind the sheet is a clearing in which sits a pair of tents, the gazebo ones you see at festivals. Tongs heaves the deer off his shoulder, throws it onto the ground. He rummages inside the entrance of one of the tents before returning with a small axe and commences hacking her into several pieces. I look away, the sound of it turning my stomach. Next steers me into the tent where the axe had been. I don't get any ideas, I said quickly, seeing the sleeping bags on the floor. You better not lay a finger on me now. Oh, would you relax, says Neck. I'm not going to touch you. You weren't part of the plan in the first place. Well, I can see that. You didn't even have a blindfold for me. I'm just saying, don't think I'm not. Give us a bit of credit, you mad thing. He laughs a little and picks a dark green hoodie up off the floor. Here, stick this on you. It's fucking freezing. I slip it on, and as my head pops through the neck, I hear it. The tearing of flesh, gnawing coming from the tent next to ours. What the fuck is that? That's why this whole mess happened in the first place. Sounds like a fucking werewolf or a tiger or something. Neck gives me a somewhat surprised look. Do you watch a lot of nature programmes, do you? He asks. Watch a few, like. Love to know the sound of something being devoured. Jesus, it's not Tongs. Tongs isn't a werewolf, is he? No, Tongs isn't a fucking werewolf, but you were half right. Half right? He's a whole wolf. 
No, the tiger bit. He's a tiger. No, the... That is a tiger you're hearing. Fuck off. No, serious. Where did lads like you get a fucking tiger? No offence. We rescued him, didn't we? You rescued him. Yeah, from the Kennedys. Sure, I read about that, but when the news said they'd lost a tiger, I didn't think they'd meant they'd fucking mislaid one. We told the cops the tiger was definitely in one of the trailers that was burned to, the, to smithereens. I think they might have thrown a dog carcass or something in there to convince them. Wanted to hunt us down themselves. And you burnt the circus down. We did what we had to do. Couldn't leave a lovely creature like that in the hands of those coked up magokes. They didn't treat him right. He was half starved. Well, uh, what's his name, I ask. It was Kennedy. He was their mascot, like. But we renamed him Leonard. Leonard. Yeah, after Leonard Cohen. Wanted to imbue him with a bit of dignity after the mortification of surface life. Yeah, all right, I say. Why do you have him here? Why did they shoot Rhonda over it? I'm more confused than I was at the start, Nick. And, and why did you bring me here? You're planning, you're hardly planning on my being Leonard's next meal, are you? I begin to panic, but Nick puts out a hand. Would you relax, he says. He's very civilised. You'd be insulted if he heard you going on like that. Would he, I say. He would be, of course. Come here till you meet him. Takes me by the arm. You're all right. I think I'll stay here, I squeak, digging my heels in, but Neck drags me out. He's mad friendly, so he is. Tongs is standing outside Leonard, Leonard's tent, having a smoke. Leonard's delighted with himself, he says, smiling a little. He's lit a fire in the centre of the clearing. Tigers can eat up to 25 pounds of meat a day, you know. So I've heard, I say. How long will that deer last him? She was small, only about three days, he says. I'll stick the rest of the meat in a couple of freezer bags. But he'll need something else by the end of the week. I shift from foot to foot. How long have you been here, I ask, looking around. I notice that they've hung sheets between the trees all the way around us, forming an enclosed circle. The sheets on the inside facing us are white, but where they fold over the ropes, I can see the other sides are expertly painted like leaves, trees and undergrowth. The sound of the deer being ripped and torn still emanates from the tent. Few months, says Tongs, exhaling. And where did you get the camouflage sheets? They're class. Painted them myself, says Neck proudly. Rhonda gave us some she had spare. You're mad talented, I tell him. Did you take art classes? Just paint what I see, he says. Just then there's a rustle from Leonard's tent and I leap up. Tongs and Neck chuckle as an enormous head peers from out from the tent. The tiger. His broad, beautiful shoulders are almost on par with mine as he emerges and pats towards us, blood around his mouth and on his paws. Jesus fucking Christ, I say. Don't be bleeding rude, says Neck to me. This is Leonard. Leonard, say hello. Leonard sniffs me. My arms are clasped up around my face and I'm paralysed. Good boy, Leonard, says Tongs. Good boy. <laughs> Leonard flicks his tongue and licks around his mouth. Gives my leg a lick as well. His tongue is so enormous it feels like a gloved hand rubbing up and down my thigh. Neck sits down by the fire, and Leonard ambles over and lies down next to him, big bloody head in his lap. Tong sits down as well, and after a minute I manage to unclench my body and perch gingerly across from the others. They're like a happy little family. Leonard is purring all sleepy after his meal. So, you went to the circus, saw that Leonard was being mistreated, 
and just decided to liberate him, I ask. Not exactly, says Tongs. There's more to it than that. But what would you have done? He's looking for something in his pockets and after a moment produces a deflated white balloon. He begins to blow into it, his cheeks round and pink under his straggly facial hair. Well, I mean, probably, like, reported it to the authorities, I'd say. Ugh, scoffs Tongs, inhaling deeply as he ties a knot in the balloon's end. They'd have done sweet fuck all. We need to take action. Couldn't have a troop of deranged fucking clowns tormenting this prince one minute longer. He leans over and tickles Leonard's ear affectionately, then returns to the balloon and begins twisting it. See, says Neck, we used to do a bit of work for Rhonda. Shift a bit of blow here and there. We'd even deliver to the clowns now and then, but we'd never been inside the tent, seen what really went on in there. Never even occurred to us that maybe we shouldn't give it to people who were in charge of wild animals. He laughs. Leonard slobbers happily on Neck's lap. So one day, about last week, Tongues continues, not looking up from the balloon on which he's scribbling with a marker. We call into Rhonda to pick up, and she's in a wee state. We ask her what the matter is, and she tells us. He pauses and holds up the balloon, which he's mangled into something resembling Rhonda, with a little black beret and black boots. As he talks, he waggles the balloon Rhonda from side to side. It's eerie in the firelight. Tells us she'd been to Kennedy's and she was withdrawing her sponsorship. Said they were abusing the tiger, every one of them absolutely out of their minds during the show. Said she couldn't bear to stay. He clears his throat. So I said, Rhonda, give us a wee pair of tickets and we'll go down and see for ourselves. Fucking grim, depressing freak show it was. This lad being made to jump through hoops, hit with a whip. Shouted at by fucking Malachi, the fucking creep. Not a chance, not a chance in hell we could let that go on, not a chance. Shakes his head, not a fucking chance. He pulls another balloon from his pocket and begins working on it. So after the show, we torched them, grins neck. Burnt them to the bleeding ground, it was a whopper. They saw us taken off with one of their trailers with Leonard inside it. Didn't catch us though. Jesus, I say. Where's the trailer now? I want to interrogate everything they just said. But this seems like the most sensible question to ask. Ah, we torched that too once we had Leonard safely here. And no one saw. Now we just left it on the side of a motorway miles out and scattered. The clowns won't find it, or us. Won't you need it to transport Leonard? Well, he's not going anywhere, says Tongs. Can ride in the back of the car if he needs to, sure. Sure, I say, mesmerised by the numerous balloon creatures that are fluttering from Tongs' busy hands like petals. They glisten all amber through the flames. Those poxy clowns be hard-pressed to find us here, says Neck. But we'll find them. Aye, that's it, says Tongs. We came back to White Sheets to check on Rhonda as soon as we had himself established here in the tent. We thought they might have gone for her after what we did. But we were too fucking late. You only missed Malachi by a minute, I said. Aye, says Tongs, I know. We have to make it right. So our Leonard is going to eat well from now on. Clown a week, isn't that right, pal? Tosses a balloon version of Malachi, scar and all, into the fire where it explodes with a bang. It is. Clown a fucking week. Bang, bang, bang. We sit around the fire for a long time. Neck gets up and brings a bottle of whiskey from one of the tents. Gives me a plastic cup full of it. It burns, but I'm thinking about Kean with the tissues in each nostril and how Mam and Dad hunting down those gurriers had been the biggest news in our family in a while. I wonder if I'm on the news yet. 
if my phone's ringing on the, on the shelf behind the counter of white sheets. I look at Leonard all lit up, his strong, lithe body, faint scars running against the stripes of his back, neck's hand stroking his fur gently over and over. After a while, I get up and walk into the tent with the sleeping bags. Nobody says anything and I climb into one, let the heat from the whiskey pour into my hands and feet. I'm asleep almost straight away. In the morning I wake and I'm alone, though the bags on either side of me look to have been slept in. Birds trill and I can hear the roar of the city in the distance. I struggle free of the sleeping bag and crawl to the door. Looking out, I see Neck piling sticks and leaves into the bonfire pit. Rhonda's lying on a white sheet on the ground, tongue standing over her. I climb out and approach them. What are you up to, I ask. Uh, just getting old poor old Rhonda ready, says Tongs, nudging her corpse affectionately with the toe of his boot. Looking down, I see that in addition to the bullet hole in her forehead, Rhonda's throat has been cut. What the fuck? What happened to her? Just took a little offering, Tongs said. Rhonda died in the name of saving our wee Leonard. Her strength is going to be in all of us when we go after that cl- those clowns. He points at the bonfire pit. I look around and see by the stone circle the three plastic whiskey cups from the night, plus a fourth one, each half full of black blood. It'll probably have congealed a wee bit, says Tongs cheerfully. Had to do it last night before it dried up inside her, you know. Besides, it'll be less messy now when we have to dismember her. Dismember her? I, I know it sounds rotten, but sure, we can't let her go to waste. We don't, we don't know when we'll catch the first clown. Can't have Leonard going hungry while we track him down, can we? I think I'm going to be sick, I say. Well, don't do it in here if you are, says Neck, tossing another bundle of sticks into the pit. Go outside the sheets if you have to, but I want nice loud vomiting so we can keep track of you. Don't think about running away. We'll only have to, we'll, we'll only hear you and have to bring you back. I look back at Tongs. He's moving around Rhonda, looking at her from different angles. Have you done this before, he asks Neck. Nah, mate, not like that. What's the best way to do it, would you say? Fuck knows. How'd you do the deer? Badly. I'd like Rhonda to have a dab side more dignity than fucking Bambi, though. Fuck it, let's toast to her first before anything else. He turns and picks up the two cups, handing one to Neck and one to me. The cup is cool. <laughs> Leonard calls Neck, walking around the other side of Rhonda. Lenny boy, come here. There's a good fella. Leonard comes padding out of his tent and over to where we stand. Tongs takes the fourth cup and empties it on the leaves in front of Leonard's paws. Leonard leans forward and begins lapping it up, his shoulder blades like fins beneath his fur. To Rhonda, says Tongs, raising his up above Rhonda's body. To Leonard, says Neck, following suit. They look to me and there's nothing I can do. To justice, I say, and down the cup of blood, metallic and slick in my throat. That was wonderful. <laughs> Accents with or without? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It was a truly fantastic story. Um, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Um, and who thought <laughs> JFK to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. have you anything else planned or anything else in line? Or has this set you on a path to um, crazy clown stories with? No, I I wrote this story like 
three years ago, two and a half years ago. And um, yeah, I haven't written anything similar to it since mm. it's very much kind of standalone in my uh, my repertoire mm. of writing. Um, it's, it definitely stands out as um, its own beast. Um, so it's, I mean, where it lives in my brain is in a collection of stories where it would sort of be the centerpiece because it's long and insane. <laughs> um, and loads of dialogue in it as well. And has a lot of dialogue. You can really imagine this being like a short film or something, can you? So yeah. Well. Oh yeah, I, I like to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I have a collection of short stories, but they're not like, again, because this is the centerpiece, they're not exactly cohesive. Um, <laughs> and then um, I'm working on a longer piece as well at the moment, um, which sadly doesn't contain clowns or tigers yet, but you never know. It's not finished, so... <laughs> is, yeah. the, is, is the idea of, 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 of dialogue quite expressive, um, in-your-face dialogue between interesting characters who can't really be quantified is, is that something that you you feel comfortable doing is that something that you're you know you're happy with something you like um well it's actually no <laughs> um it would be the short answer uh, most of my work I find is quite um introspective and it a lot would take place in kind of characters heads and um they wouldn't be dealing with situations quite as huge as this um or as fantastic or as <laughs> kind of surreal or yeah I find this again as I said sort of stands out in my work as one of the only times that I've dealt with um that kind of dialogue and and kind of large swathes of dialogue um it wouldn't generally be what I would um gravitate towards or what would come first to me um but I think as well that's sort of based in character. I feel almost like it wasn't me who created that dialogue. It was the dialogue that came from the characters, sort of writing themselves, if you get me. And then other characters, or most of the characters that I would have written uh, otherwise, just happen, just happen not to be like that, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like, yeah. like... As in, and I can't, I don't know if that's because I'm less comfortable writing that way or it's just whatever comes naturally to me tends to be characters who are a little bit more, um, like, a little bit quieter, I think. More reflective. A little bit more reflective, yeah. Um, well, I think it's obvious from this that you have created what is a very surreal and fantastic <laughs> and, and also almost magic situation. And you have allowed your characters to dictate their own narrative as they travel through this mm. situation. Um, you know what? What is really fascinating, and what I, I I love about it is that I can definitely see this developing. I could see this story turning into something else. Yeah. So I'm just planting that seed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely. And I, I've kind of thought about it because it did get so long, and it mm. then became the longest short piece that I'd ever written. Um. So I did think kind of about extending it but then it didn't this had kind of flown forth so organically that I felt if I pressed it further it might not be um so yeah I've I it's definitely 
um, in the like part of my brain where I file things that could be expanded. <laughs> um, yeah, but, because there's yeah. so much there with her family background and like yeah. even with Rhonda's impression of her, which is or isn't right or whatever. You know that. Yeah. Also, who is Rhonda? Feel, yeah. Like there are so many things I, I often you... think about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how does a woman from Boston end up opening a, a dry cleaners like South Circular Road? Yeah. And actually, the, the name White Sheets that was that, yeah. That, 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 and yeah. actually, funnily enough, um, about a year after this, I uh, read a news story about I think it was a dry cleaners or a laundrette that had been un- like busted as a front <laughs> for a drug <laughs> dealing, and I think it was in it was in Ireland definitely. It might have been yeah. in Dublin. And I was like. I hope no one thinks I. That's where you got. The oh, that was no, my idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was my thing. Um, but yeah, and I also actually one thing that I did like, and I think was a inspiration for this story was um, the idea of like um, sort of surreal carry on taking place in Dublin because I feel like whenever I read anything set in Dublin that's contemporary it's like gritty gangland like which is all you know true and often very well written yeah Yeah, and it is definitely part of the city and um I kind of wanted to read something a little bit like weird set in Dublin that doesn't happen that often in um like adult literature like quite often I feel like there's a lot of um children's or young adult writers in Ireland writing mm-hmm. kind of strange things might happen yeah. in Dublin but I don't get that a lot in adult contemporary literature yeah um, because but I, I really love the dark humor in this yeah. as well and it's like you, you know you could go either way with this this could be like some gritty you know like you said, but then by yeah. taking it in the dark humor sort of way yeah really adds a completely different dimension to it doesn't it Makes yeah yeah I wanted um something I wanted to see, I wanted to explore like a possibility, a possible like strand of like reality in Dublin that like mm-hmm. uh, I hadn't seen before, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you did it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank it's you. been really fun. The Noella Bice podcast is produced in a small back room in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Still Worlds Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noelle Bowes Press. With thanks to Ruby Colley for her music. The no-